We've now turned to the skill set of making marriage and family successful. The prophets, seers, and revelators, when they wrote that proclamation, said, here's the secret. There are nine principles that are at the heart of making family and marriage successful. And again, can you imagine how long they debated that list of nine? What did they leave out? What did they add? What did they disagree on? What did they all agree on? And after, I can't even imagine countless hours of discussion, they said, here are nine principles that make families and marriages most successful. We've done three of them. And I would suggest they're kind of paired. Faith and prayer go together. And then we moved on to repentance. Families will never work. Marriage will never be successful without a significant element of repentance. It's the willingness to say, I'm sorry. I broke something and I'd like to fix it. So last week, we took a hard look at what is repentance. It is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the church, and so many people turn it into lists and procedures. And the problem is, it, it, it breaks down in every case, and sometimes that can be actually painful. What if I skipped a step? Does that mean I'm not, I'm not forgiven? So we actually went through the Book of Mormon as an illustration and said, let's look at four or five different people in the Book of Mormon on how they repent. Did any of them do the same thing? Did any of them go through the same process? And yet, did the Lord acknowledge their repentance in every case? So what we, what we learned is that the Book of Mormon seems to suggest the two elements of repentance. Element number one is getting the Savior back in your life. It, what they all have in common, what every Book of Mormon repenter has in common is they yearn for the relationship with Christ. They don't check boxes and go through procedures. They yearn for a restored relationship. Re re repentance is primarily about restoring a broken relationship. Now, when we talk about repentance, like going to the bishop and confessing, how often can you do that? But if repentance is restoring a relationship with Christ, how often can you do that? That is our daily act of repentance. It's getting the Savior back into my life. So step number one is restoring that relationship with the Savior. But it can't just be about getting Him back in my life. It has to be a course correction. Because what did every one of those Book of Mormon repenters do after they sought Jesus? What did their lives have in common after that? A course correction. There has to be a course correction. In fact, this goes together. If you're not seeking a course correction, are you really seeking Jesus in your life? Because what's he going to do when he comes into your life? He's going to correct your course. So I just want to very briefly mention Book of Mormon illustration. What does that mean? What is, how is repentance a course correction? And I would just simply summarize it like this. Why are you sorry? Why are you sorry? Repentance, we often say, is being sorry. But why are you sorry? So the Book of Mormon talks a great deal about agency. And let me just illustrate it this way. The law of agency says, here's my choice. 
Here's my choice. I get to choose. I have a choice. Now, God has given a law that distinguishes those choices. These are wrong choices based on the law, and these are right choices. Heavenly Father says, here are the right choices and here are the wrong choices. And it's not so much that you have to do what I say, and if you don't, I'll punish you. It's wrong choices lead to captivity. And loving us and wanting to free us from captivity, he says, don't do that. Wrong choices lead to captivity. Right choices lead to freedom. And that's agency. Who will go to the celestial kingdom? Who will have the freedom to walk into the celestial kingdom? Those who make the choices that bring that freedom. If I don't go to the celestial kingdom, whose fault is it? Is it God's fault? Is it God's fault because he kicked me out of the kingdom? No. Why am I captive and I can't enjoy that freedom? Because of my choices. So the challenge is when you make a wrong choice, are you sorry because of the captivity? Or are you sorry because of the choice? Ponder that, for example, or for a moment, and tell me, what does that look like in everyday life? What does being sorry for the captivity look like? Someone being insulted by what you said. Okay. You don't think it's a big deal, so you say sorry, but you think they're overreacting. I'm sorry for, yep, you got it. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that you got hurt. That's one. Okay, I'm sorry that I got the ticket. I'm, there it is. I think frequently it turns into, I'm sorry I got caught. Now, I don't mean to be a naysayer, but I have, I have served on disciplinary councils. I've watched a lot of people come in who got excommunicated and disfellowshipped. And I began to saw, see a pattern. I began to see a lot of people come in and repent because they got caught. I saw a man who had pornography problems for years. And what triggered their repentance was they got caught. And now they're embarrassed and ashamed. And their embarrassment and shame motivates change. Now, how long will their change? How long will their behavior change if they're sorry for the consequences. There you go. Now I'm going to sin again, but this time I'll be smarter and make sure I don't get caught. Is that repentance? That is not repentance. That does not qualify under the term repentance. If I'm sorry that I got caught, and now I'm just going to be smarter and not get caught, you are not repentant. And you do not qualify for repentance. Do you see that tricky slope? Now, let's take the man with a pornography problem and make him sorry for the choice. What's the difference? Gosh, 
Whether I got caught or not, this behavior I want to change. This is not how I want to live. Even someone who's uh, sorry because they did the wrong thing is somebody who's going to turn themselves in. They're going to be the ones who catch themselves. That's in the church handbook. That's what they say to bishops is one of the greatest indicators of a repentant person. What brought them in? What brought them in? What was the reason they came in and sought repentance? Let me give you a couple scriptures. Turn with me to Alma chapter 32. Now, Alma's grateful that the poor Zoramites are repenting, but he does say, I have an issue. And what's Alma's issue? Turn to Alma 32. Book of Mormon, this is where Alma turns from the rich Zoramites, the Ramiumptum Zoramites, and he turns to the ones that have been kicked out of their synagogue. He turns to the poor, but he has a stinging message for them. Alma chapter 32. Let's start in verse. Hold on, let me get there. Let's start in verse. 30, verse 12, it is well that you are kicked out of your synagogues, that you may be humble. Now listen to 13, and go broader than humility. See it as more than humility is a cause of repentance. And now because you are compelled to be humble, because you were compelled to be humble. Now some people are humble because they got caught. And I have to save face. I have to save face with my wife, with my children. I have to act all humble. I have to act all repentant because I'm embarrassed. He says, it's good that you are compelled to be humble because a man sometimes, if he's compelled to be humble, seeks repentance. Notice the word sometimes. <laughs> Why do you shake your head, Sarah? Because <laughs> not always, right? Sometimes if you're compelled, you seek repentance. And now surely whosoever repenteth findeth mercy, and he that findeth, findeth mercy and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And now, as I said, that because you were compelled to be humble, you were blessed. Do you not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? Yea, he that humbleth himself and repenteth of his sins and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed. Yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble because of whatever reason. Do you see repentance? So there's a get Jesus into my life and then there's a course correction. But the course correction is, do you regret this? Or do you regret this? If you regret, if you regret this, what happens when you're given a do-over? Jesus comes into your life and he gives you a do-over. If you regret that you got caught, if you regret the consequences, tell me what you do when you get a do-over. You make the same choice, but you just try to avoid the captivity. If you regret this, and Jesus puts you right back there, now what do you do? No way am I doing that again. And that's called repentance. If you are not making that course correction, you are not repenting. 
If you are not, I do not want to make the choice. I don't care about the captivity. I care about the choice I made. And I don't care who's watching or who's not. I'm going to correct my choice. Sarah, are you going to say something? It makes me think exactly of putting a kid in timeout. Um, and some of you may have been in timeout maybe in the last 10 years or 15 years. But if you tell a little kid, I put a kid in timeout today. But it's more of a think time, right? Because if you tell a kid, it doesn't work to say, you have to say you're sorry, because they're not sorry. Yeah. They're not. Just sitting in time out for five minutes doesn't make them, it's not a change of heart. They're just mad they got caught. Yeah. So you give them another chance, they're going to be sneakier. But if you give them a chance to change their heart and, you know, talk to them about, well, why did you do this? Or how did you feel when you did this? And this is why I would not like for you to do this in the future. This is how you made your sister feel, you know? Yep. But it's exactly, this is why I'm like chuckling back here, because it doesn't work to just say, say you're sorry. Yeah. Change, why are you sorry? And give them an opportunity to declare why they're sorry. One more scripture quickly. Mormon got it. Remember when Mormon got really excited because he saw the, his people were sorry? He thought, yay, they're going to repent. No, wrong kind of sorrow. Turn to Mormon chapter 1. It was the wrong kind of sorrow. But what I love here is he gives us titles. He, he, he titles the two sorrows. So verse 12 of chapter Mormon 2. Mormon 2 verse 12. I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow, and I began to rejoice because I thought they were going to repent. However, verse 13, someone read this, Mormon 2.13, what are the two sorrows? Anyone? Amanda, do you mind? But behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. Beautiful description, right? The sorrowing of the damned is I can't get away with it. I'm sorry that I can't get away with it. The sorrowing that leads to repentance is I'm sorry I made the choice. One more clarification. We do need to talk about church repentance. Give me five minutes to talk about church repentance. Because I can't knowingly teach repentance without clarifying. Wait, we got to talk church repentance. Um, there is a bar that you have to clear to come into the church. Do you all know that? Do we baptize anyone who wants to? We don't. Um, I served a long time as a zone leader and I was 13 months as a zone leader. And the bulk of what zone leaders do is they interview people for baptism. And there is a bar. There is a bar. You have to clear this bar if you're going to enter the church. And the job of a zone leader and a district leader or a mission president, or in the case of members, a bishop, is to say, does your life clear the bar? Now, do you think everyone I interviewed was approved for baptism? No. On several occasions, I said, no, this person cannot be baptized. Their life doesn't clear the bar. Now, does that change after you become a member? It doesn't. If there was a bar in order to enter the church, there's a bar that you have to maintain inside membership of the church. Now, what happens after you're baptized if your life dips below that bar? Well, if you couldn't join the church without clearing that bar, you can't stay in the church without clearing that bar. And you need to be removed from the church. 
Now, the only person who can decide whether or not you should stay or need to be removed is whom? It's not you. It's whom? It's the steward of the church. Now, in the case of missionaries, it was a zone leader or a district leader. In the case of members, it's your key holders. So, yes, if your life dips below that bar, you need the permission of a bishop to stay in the church because your membership is involved. So does the bishop have anything to do with your eternal get Jesus into your life forgiveness? No. But the bishop is very involved in, do you remain a member of the church? You cannot remain a member of the church if your life is dipped below that line without the consent of a steward of the church. So do you see why confession to a bishop is essential? But confession to a bishop really isn't over here. Confession to a bishop is membership. I'd like to maintain my membership and my life has dipped below the line. What do I need to do to stay a member? That's a very different issue. And I think we needed to clarify that. Okay, that's repentance. Any thoughts? Do you see why repentance is given as an essential element of, fam of successful families and marriages? No marriage will last without repentance. No two mortal human beings can make it work without a whole lot of repentance. Now, going hand in hand with repentance is the fourth quality of successful marriages, and that is forgiveness. Let me point out that the Lord declares two very significant doctrines when it comes to repentance. Now, we're going to clarify them, but let's list them. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenant section 64. Let's do this together. Doctrine and Covenant section 64. Verse 8 is declaration number one. The, the Savior's going to make two declarations here. Declaration number one is the end of verse eight. Ready? Here's truth number one. My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil, they were afflicted and sorely chastened. I do not believe he's saying that he chastened them. I don't think he's saying I chastened them because they didn't forgive. I think he's saying what naturally happens, an unforgiving heart hurts you. If you choose to not forgive, it won't hurt them. It hurts you. Now, do you see how stupid it is? So first someone hurts me. Someone does something horrible against me and that hurts me. And then I don't forgive them and I hurt me. So first they hurt me and then I hurt me. And that doesn't make sense. It's like drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. I hate you and I drink poison and I hope you die because of it. It's never going to happen. Your lack of forgiveness does not hurt them. But it does hurt you. 
Truth number one, you are the one that is hurt by an unforgiving heart. And I know why you're not forgiving. I know what you're trying to do. They hurt you and you want revenge and so you want to hurt them. But the irony is they hurt you and then you hurt you. And that's dumb. Let me illustrate. H. Burke Peterson. Sorry, I didn't mean to. H. Burke Peterson. James, do you mind? Sure. Nice and loud. For much of our lives, we lived in central Arizona. Some years ago, a group of teenagers from a local high school went on an all-day picnic to the desert of the outskirts of Phoenix. For as some of you know, the desert foliage is rather sparse, mostly mesquite, catclaw, and palo verde trees, with a few cactus scattered here and and there, in the heat of the summer, where the thickets of this desert growth, you may find rattlesnakes as unwelcome residents. These young people were picnicking and playing, and during their frolicking, one of the girls was bitten on the ankle by the rattlesnake. As is the case with such a bite, the rattler's fangs released venom almost immediately into her bloodstream. This very moment was a time of critical decision. They could immediately begin to extract the poison from her leg, or they could search out the snake and destroy it. The decision made, the girl and her young friends pursued the snake. It slipped quickly into the undergrowth and avoided them for 15 to 20 minutes. Finally, they found it, and rocks and stones soon avenged the infliction. Then they remembered their companion had been bitten. They became aware of the, her discomfort as by now the venom had had time to move from the surface of the skin deep into the tissues of her foot and leg. Within another 30 minutes, they were at the emergency room of the hospital. By then, the venom was well in at its work of destruction. A couple of days later, I, asked to visit, I was asked to visit her in the hospital. As I entered her room, I saw a pathetic sight. Her foot and leg were elevated, swollen, almost beyond recognition. This tissue in her limb had been destroyed by the poison, and a few days later, it was found her leg would have to be amputated below the knee. It was a senseless sacrifice, the price of revenge. How much better would it have been if, after the young woman had been bitten, there had been an extraction of the venom from the leg in a process known for all desert dwellers? What did killing the snake do for her? How did killing that snake bless her? In fact, what did it do? The 15 to 20 minutes that they spent chasing the snake could perhaps have spared her leg. It didn't help her to kill the snake. It hurt her to kill the snake. And you do the same thing. I know people have hurt you. I know they've done horribly things, horrible things to you. I know some people either watching or listening this class have been severely abused. But hating them does not hurt them. It hurts you. First they hurt you, and then you hurt you. Now, truth number one, let's go back to the Doctrine and Covenants. Truth number one, or truth number two, is in verse nine. And this one needs some explaining, so we're going to explain this. But what's truth number two? Truth number one is, failing to forgive hurts me. 
Truth number two. Amanda, do you mind verse nine? Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. That is truth number two. You commit the greater sin. Not forgiving is the greater sin. Now we need to clarify that. Because that can be taken wrong. But no matter what they did to you, you not forgiving them is a greater sin. Let me clarify. Let's turn to the parable of the unforgiving servant. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, New Testament, Matthew 18. Let's read this parable together. Now, what prompts the parable is Peter asking, how often do I have to forgive? How often do I have to forgive? When, do, when can I not forgive? Now, I don't mean to put venom in his words, but what, what's implied in that? When can I, when can I get revenge? You know, when can I not? When, how often should I forgive? And Jesus gives this parable. I need a reader. Elder Fielding, do you mind? Starting in 23. But for as much as he had not to pay, the Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and commanded to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the dead. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who saw him hundred times. And he laid hands on him and took him out of the place, saying, Pay me, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, and went and cast him into prison until he should be dead. So when his fellow servants saw that what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto, unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest of me. Shouldst thou not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wrought, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. We can, Jesus says that's how the kingdom is. But you, you can't miss the end of this. How does the parable end? He gets his debt back. He gets the debt back because he insulted the king by not being grateful for his generosity. There's the greater offense. It's not what they've done to you. It's you insulting the king being ungrateful for his generosity at waiving your debt. Now, if that's how you're going to play it, you get the debt back. Now, let's put some meat on these bones. Okay, I need a calculator. Anyone want to be my calculator? Anyone a finance major? No one? Okay. Elizabeth, you're my calculator. Okay, well, if we were to take the time and turn to the Bible dictionary, you would read that a talent is a weight. 
So let's see if we can figure out what 10,000 talents is worth. So one talent equals 75.6 pounds. Now what's implied? What metal do you think is implied? What weight is implied here? I'm going to make the assumption that Jesus is talking about gold, right? That Jesus is talking about gold. So this is 10,000 talents of gold. And one talent is 75.6 pounds. Let's figure out how much each talent is worth. So I need you to multiply 7.6 by 16. So one talent equals how many ounces? 75.6 times 16. Ninety. That's the weight of one talent in ounces. Now let's multiply that by today's price of gold. Oh, come on. Just give me. Okay. The price of gold today is $1,915.60 per ounce. So I need you to multiply 1,209.6 by 1,915.60. One talent is equivalent to how much money? What was the last one? 109. And he owes how many talents? So I need to add four zeros. How much does he owe the king? $23 billion. 10,000 talents is 20 three billion dollars and what's his occupation it just went up Recal recalculate <laughs> what's his occupation he's the king's servant he shovels horse poop and we can ask all that what kind of fool gets 23 billion dollars in debt but the better question is what kind of king can erase a 23 billion dollar debt is it going to cost that king to erase that debt? Or is it just nothing to him? It comes with a tremendous cost. Servant one owed the king $23 billion. Do you see symbolically what Jesus is trying to point out? Who is this and who is that and what is this? That is God. This is me, and that is my debt to him for everything that he's done. I owe God $23 billion, and because I can't pay it, what does he do? Because I can't pay it, what does he do? He loosed me and forgave the debt. You're free, Bryce. You don't owe me a penny. I free you of a $23 billion debt. Sarah. I have a question. Um, so this 
Savior telling this story, did he use like this exorbitant on purpose money like he's telling people and they can't even fathom yep. how many talents that yep. is? Is that on purpose? That's on purpose. He deliberately is using amounts that are astronomical. Yeah. Now let's do this one. In Matthew chapter 20, in one of the Savior's parables, a man gets hired at 6 a.m., works till 6 p.m., and he's going to be paid a penny. And the plural of penny is pence. So this is 100 working man's daily wage. So let's give him $15 an hour. $15 an hour times 12 times 100. Eighteen thousand bucks. Now, if you if someone owed me eighteen thousand dollars, I'd want it, right? But what does it cost me to demand the eighteen thousand dollars? Twenty-three billion. Do you see the parable? Do you see the message? If I insist that you pay me what you owe me. I offend the king. My offense isn't to you. And that's not saying that I owe the king more than he owes the king. Guy kidnaps my daughter and rapes my daughter and I hate him. Are you saying that I've committed a worse sin than raping a little girl? No, his debt to the king is enormous. But my debt to the king is greater than his debt to me. I commit the greater offense. What he did to me doesn't compare to what I did to God. The act of ingratitude to willingness to erase a $23 billion debt, that's the greater sin. So here's your choices. Ready? Demand the $18,000. And pay 23 billion. Free yourself of 23 billion and let go of the 18,000. You get to choose. You get to choose how much mercy God gives you. It is in your control. I think in this case, too, though, it's not just the 23 billion, it's denying the full power of the atonement, saying that we don't want this infinite, like, not. And that's a small number compared to what we're really giving up, isn't it? That is a minuscule number to what we're really giving up. But do you see the point? No one would say that makes financial sense to gain 18,000 and lose 23 billion. And yet you do, you and I do that all the time. If you hold on to what they owe you, You are telling God to hold on to what you owe him. You set the terms. The Lord just follows you. I, for one, would like God to quickly forgive me. Therefore, how do I earn that? How do I gain that? I quickly forgive others. Now, let me be bold and say... Where in my life do I most significantly practice forgiveness? Here in this class where you guys offend me, 
on the street while I'm driving where people offend me by, no, where do I most significantly practice forgiveness? Say it. In my home. And yet, where is it the hardest to practice? In my home. My wife should be the person I forgive the quickest. My children should be the people I forgive the quickest. And yet, when you put human beings together, they kind of bump into each other, right? And we harbor ill feelings towards those in that circle. I am declaring you two doctrines. Not forgiving hurts you. And your insisting on the $18,000 is going to cost you $23 billion. And that's foolish. Let it go. I love this phrase. Loose them. Loose them from the debt. Let me give you an example. I need everyone to close your eyes because I promised her I would keep this private and I haven't taken her name out of the link yet. Hold on. Close your eyes. Don't want to look. Okay, I took it out of this one, but not into the link. I promised her I'd keep this private, but I want to share what a student shared with me after this lesson. This is the exact same lesson. She said, I can't even begin to tell you how much this lesson has changed my life, Brother Dunford. In short, for years, I've been trying to forgive my dad for his cruelty towards me and my other family members. I was that little girl who never felt safe around her daddy. It just kills me. As an adult seeking for healing, I have met with priesthood leaders, therapists who specialize in trauma and have counseled with my father, my heavenly father, but still my pain from my experiences wouldn't go away. Most of it deep down was me not wanting to forgive and release him. I felt like if I forgave, then it would make what he did to me okay. Like no justice would need to be met because I forgave. So everything would be all good. It would let him off the hook. I wanted him to fix what he did. Now, however, I understand that his debt is not to me. His debt is, the debt for my dad's sins has never been owed to me. The debt is owed to God. It's so hard to put everything into a text, but I just wanted to thank you, Brother Dunford, for teaching this lesson, which has allowed me through the atonement of Jesus Christ to do something I've, never, I've been trying to do for a very long time. I can honestly say, that I forgive my dad. And forgiving him does not let him off the hook because he's not on my hook. He's on God's hook. 
What a beautiful thing the atonement of Jesus Christ is. I am free. And then she added, not only was I freed, but I felt clean. After I loosed my dad from what he had done, I felt like Heavenly Father loosed me from things I had done. It was almost like God could only forgive me after I forgave my dad. I am free and I am clean. You don't need to keep them on the hook. You don't need to worry about this debt. One of my favorite qualities of God is he is a God of justice. I can trust that he will deal with them. I don't need to worry about that. My job is to forgive this and free myself of that. If I choose to hold on to what you have done to me, I am telling God to hold on to what I have done to him. It is hypocritical to ask God to forgive me $23 billion and not be willing to forgive 18,000. What makes families work? Forgiveness. I would invite you to search your soul and ask yourself, how quickly do you want God to forgive you? How quickly do you want God to let your sins go? Then look at that inner circle and be that quick to let them go. We do that we'll have successful families and marriages. We hold on to the 18,000. You're constantly bringing it up. Do you remember when you? Every time you say, do you remember when you? You are saying, I have not loosed you from this debt. And you might as well hear God say to you, then neither have I loosed you. Your choice. I love the doctrine that I get to choose how much mercy God gives me. I want a lot of mercy. Therefore, I must grant it. Practice forgiveness. I testify with all my soul that your, for, your family will be as, as successful as your family's willingness to forgive. Do you agree with that statement? And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.